Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, a couple verses there we're going to quickly look at. Does everyone have a copy of the notes tonight? Charlie had, uh, had been passing those out. Who doesn't have a sheet of the notes? We got one up here, Charlie. Ron didn't get one. Our pastor didn't get one. There you go. Give him one. One up front here. And I think everyone else should have a sheet of the notes. Yep. Great. Um, you'll see here that what I've titled this is why I'm convinced of the Christian worldview. If I was, let's say, hypothetically at Starbucks, hypothetical, uh, which I've been to three times already today, just for the record. If I was there and somebody saw me reading my Bible and they weren't a Christian and they asked me the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you convinced of Christianity? Uh, and we got to have a half hour just to sit down and I could just kind of talk to him about why uh, I'm convinced of the Christian belief system or the Christian worldview. Um, I would give them Roman numeral number three, which is what we're going to walk through a little bit tonight, okay? And what I would do is I would explain to them uh, about the Christian worldview, and I would tell them that everybody has a worldview. Now, you guys have heard of that term. I gave you a, defini- a definition of it here. A worldview is a framework or a grid through which we make sense of the world rationally, emotionally, and spiritually. Okay? That's what your worldview does. And everybody has one. So none of us escapes without having some sort of a construct or a grid through which we interpret life. Are you all with me? Okay? Some have used the uh, illustration of uh, if I gave everybody here a pair of pink sunglasses, the lenses were pink, and you went out tomorrow to spend the whole day wearing those, everything you'd see would be in pink. And the reason is because that is what is informing your vision and the way you're processing information as it goes through your mind, okay? That's what a worldview does. It is a set of lenses that we all wear that informs us on how we make sense of things like suffering and death and marriage, not trying to relate all those together, and uh, meaning in life and all of these sorts of things, all right? Uh, that's what a, a worldview does. So it's a framework or a grid. Now, when I really came alive to understanding that everybody has a worldview, uh, it radically changed the way that I have conversations with people. And the reason is because I used to think that people who weren't really into God or into faith, they just weren't really, they didn't think much about life. They didn't have much of a grid. And so I would try to simply give them my worldview. Or give them my grid, you see? And what I realized was, wait a minute, they already have a fully integrated grid. They've already got a way that they've done life now for the number of years they've been around that has helped them to make sense of things rationally, morally, and spiritually. And so the way I began to do evangelism and sharing the gospel is I began to ask a whole lot more questions. Years ago, when I was younger in my faith, I was much more verbal in the way that I shared the gospel. That's probably a nice way of putting it. Uh, I, unfortunately, was the guy that if you gave me 15 minutes of your time, I would take 12 of it to try to cram as much gospel information into you so that now, hey, I've done my job. Now, you're repulsed and you're offended because I haven't really sought to understand you, but I did my job, you see. And I, I began to mature and began to um, to seek discernment on how to do this, I began to realize that my most effective evangelism with people we were always those times that I tended to ask more questions than I did statements given to them. 
because I really sought to understand the framework of how they thought. And here's what happens. As you begin to make sense of worldviews and you begin to understand them, you now already know the answers that are going to come back to you before you even ask the question most of the time. So when you ask questions about meaning or morality um, or, or whatever it is that you're going to use as a common point for conversation, oftentimes you can already anticipate what they're going to say in advance. And the advantage is you can help to uh, surface inconsistencies and maybe even some things that maybe they haven't really thought about. And I found a lot of fruit in that type of evangelism. Um, a lot of people don't like to do evangelism for the main reason is they're either not confident in what they have to say, or two, they're not real comfortable or confident in how to extract information and ideas from people. Would you guys agree with that? To sit down and to really learn how to ask the right questions, how to surface choice things that you can work with, that, that takes time, it's an art, it's a skill, it requires prayer and discernment. But when you begin to do that, now you can have a conversation with virtually anybody. And no matter what they believe, you now have an ability to help them connect their dots or show them how their dots are not connected. And that, by the way, is what a worldview is. Uh, when I sit down and meet with people or if they call me and want to meet because they want to talk about things going on in life or things are hard for them, essentially what they're saying is, could you sit down with me and help me connect the dots of my life? See, I've got all of these dots in my life, and they feel so disconnected I need some sort of a worldview to help tie all of these dots together so that I feel like my life makes sense. Y'all with me? That's what a worldview does, is it connects the dots and it shows you a coherent, meaningful, life-changing system that we have the opportunity to help affect in other people. That's the concept of worldview. And that's what I want to look at with you. I gave you some examples of how worldviews inform our lives. Uh, first one I wrote on here, pretty simple. We've all spent a lot of time thinking through this, I'm sure. Uh, the events at 9-11. Now, 9-11 occurred for one reason and one reason alone. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was that there was what's known as an Islamic fundamentalism or an Islamic terrorist worldview that informed them about the morality and the meaning and the effect of what they chose to do, right? That's why they did it. They did not do what was inconsistent with their worldview. Now, moderate Muslims look at this, and many of them were appalled, and, and, and they claim to have been ashamed of this kind of activity because they have a different mentality or worldview about what the teachings of Islam or the teachings of Muhammad are. But if you take Wahhabism or some of the earlier fundamentalist tendencies of Islam, you'll see that the actions of these people were perfectly consistent with their Islamic worldview. And therefore, to get on a plane, to fly in, in, uh, into buildings and kill over 3,000 innocent people, that is perfectly consistent with their worldview because of one main idea, and that is that there's basically the world is divided into two camps. Those who, are, who submit to the teachings and the person of Allah and Muhammad, who is his prophet, and those who do not. And anyone who does not is an infidel. And therefore, 
anyone that is an infidel and is a threat to the Islamic worldview, now is fair game to be killed and murdered because they potentially could corrupt the rest of the Muslim world. Okay? That's how that worldview informed them. Or secondly, several years ago, many of us still remember the Columbine shootings. Those two boys that walked through the school system, remember? The school and just began executing people and shooting people. Well, when you began to read in their diaries and you began to hear some of the things of where these guys were mentally, you began to see that both of these guys had lost all hope and had a completely what's known as a nihilistic worldview. They believed ultimately that life was meaningless, there was no purpose in life, and therefore they were going to exact their own form of meaning into life and go out with a bang. And that's, the, what, that's what they did. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the, the uh, Russian novelist and philosopher, said that the greatest problem with atheism isn't that man will believe in nothing, it's that man now can believe in anything, you see. And if you have the worldview that there is no God, then ultimately this idea of nihilism, which comes from a Latin word nihil, which means nothing, this view of nothingness, that there is no meaning, that life is utterly without purpose, then I can go ahead and affect my life and add whatever meaning I want to my life, however I want to do it. So I can go do it by living the good life, whatever that might be, how I define it. Or if I'm angry at life, then I can go ahead and I can make a statement, which is what those two kids did. Or we can lighten it up a little bit, I guess you could say that. you got Hugh Hefner's worldview. I mean, here's a guy pushing 80. It's almost comical anytime you're watching, uh, you know, A&E or biography and you're watching Hugh Hefner. You know, you see this guy pushing 80 and he's got these 22, 23-year-old girls always around him. This is the guy who's made a choice in his life that I'm going to live my entire life for one thing and one thing only, and that is the maximization of my pleasure, my comfort, my ease, and my pleasure. And I'm going to make a whole bunch of money doing something that a lot of people think is immoral, but I don't care because I'm not hurting anybody, and heck, it's making my life really, really good. You see? The life of pure hedonism. And that worldview informs all the decisions that a person's going to make. Uh, now, we may not be Hugh Hefner's, but all of us have a little bit of this in us, don't we? This sense of uh, life is short, and I've got to maximize my comfort and my pleasure and my ease, and therefore, I will cut things out of my life that hinder that, and I will add things into my life that seem to add to that, and therefore, we live this life of kind of this pleasure-seeking principle. Or Donald Trump's worldview. I'm not maligning these guys. This is simply the way they speak, what they've written, what they show themselves uh, to be true whenever they're on TV. Here's Trump and Donald Trump's tower and Donald Trump's ties and Donald Trump's power shirts and all these things. That Trump's worldview is pure materialism, isn't it? It's pure power, pure materialism, pure control. See? And you know? He's been able to do it, so he gets to continue in this worldview. And everything he does, every choice he makes, is informed by this mentality of power and control. See? Or, we get a little more theological here. You can use that word here. Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever wondered why these guys and ladies go door to door, not for two years, 
like the Mormons do. They do their two years of time and that's it. These guys do it for the rest of their life. Well, the reason is is because they have a worldview that is informing their behavior. And that is that there's a combination of end times. Uh, the end of the world is coming in our lifetime. They've been saying that since 1880, but it's still happening. And so when they come to you, you guys have had them come to your door. Anybody here have them come to your door? Yeah? What's the first thing they bring up every time? It's, have you looked at the world around you? Look at what's going on. And they'll give you these little uh, journals and articles that they've got, and nice color brochures, and you'll see all kinds of devastation around the world and AIDS going on in Africa and uh, nuclear threats overseas and uh, abortion and all these things going on in America. And then they give you another one and they show you a nice little half-dressed family in a garden. And they go, wouldn't you want to be with your family in a garden forever and ever and ever? Yeah. Well, that's what you can have because you can live with your family forever and forever. See? And what informs them of this behavior is the end times and a works theology, that if I don't do this, I will not be with my family in a new creation, with a, an Edenic garden that I get to live in forever and ever, you see? So, you guys see how worldviews inform all of us? Uh, it even informs you if you don't even know what you believe. Um, see, I was in Co- was Colorado, first of the year, I'm out there and I meet this guy that, you know, he's your typical ski guy, your ski bum, just on the slopes up in Winter Park, I'm talking to the guy at this restaurant, and uh, he says, what are you here for? And I said, I'm, I'm actually speaking at a Bible school. The guy just had no idea what to do with that. And he goes, oh, all right. I said, yeah. I said, you ever read the Bible? Oh, you know, no, I'm not much of a church guy. I said, I didn't ask if you go to church. Do you, read, you ever read the Bible? No, no. no. I said, do you... Uh, do you have any idea what the Bible teaches about man, about life, about these things? No, you know, just kind of be good and do. You know, I'm a good guy. You know, I'm good. I, I, I help with the kids in the ski on the mountain. And he gives me this list that he's just a good guy. You know, and I said, well, what do you believe about life? And what's the purpose and meaning of life? And he said, I, I don't know. He said, you know, I don't really care to know. I, I, that's not what drives me. I just take every day for what it is. I live for the for the day. Well, that's a worldview that this guy has. Every day he takes at face value. So I said to him, uh, things are going well? He goes, oh, yeah, man, things are great. I said, you got somebody really close to you? He goes, yeah, my mom. I said, what if all of a sudden tomorrow you wake up and something really tragic happened to your mother? Somebody brutally murdered your mother. I said, what? How would you react to that? How would you make sense of that act of violence on your mother? And that's when this guy began to now think outside of his ski bum mentality and now have to make sense of some things like justice, uh, loss, the meaning of life. Why would I be outraged? Why would I demand justice? Where did these notions come from? You see, everyone has this worldview Some just don't spend a lot of time trying to connect dots because they haven't been dealt a life yet that needs to connect the dots. So, the Christian worldview. Well, look in 2 Corinthians 10 real quick. Paul says, beginning in verse 3, he says, For though we live in the world, speaking about believers, he says, Though we live in the world, 
We do not wage war as the world does. In other words, we all uh, participate in the world. We all have jobs like the world has. We all drive cars like the world has. You know, we all uh, rent or own homes or apartments like the world does. We, we participate and live in the world. We're not weirdos that run off to the mountains or the wilderness. <coughs> uh, we're not these people who are so radically different in the world. We are in the world. Yet, <coughs> excuse me, we don't wage war as the world does, meaning that the world in Paul's mentality is a place that is a place of strife and it's a place that's fallen and depraved and therefore the world wages war with each other. They wage war with each other economically. They wage war with each other politically. They wage war in all kinds of material ways. And he says, we live in the world, but we don't wage war as the world does. No. Verse 4, the weapons... Uh, we fight with, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Immediately, Paul now gives you his worldview. In other words, he says, hey, our worldview isn't a worldview of materialism and naturalism, that we just live by the economies of scale in the world. We don't just live by whatever we can get out of this world. That our power is a divine power. And it's a power that actually demolishes strongholds. See what Paul's saying? That we recognize as Christians in this world that there are things that put us in bondage and that bind us in this world that we don't understand. And the weapons that we have demolish those things that bind and that put us in bondage. See, our weapons uh, that we use to help people aren't the weapons of, for instance, um, if we just have a better system of economics, our country would do better. That's the answer. Is that the answer? That if we could get everybody making a whole bunch more money, that's the answer? That's not the answer. We made a whole bunch of money in the 80s. We made even more money in the 90s. And that wasn't the answer to our country. We're wealthier than we've ever been. Uh, we don't sit on the sidelines saying, if we could just spend more money in education, if we could just educate people more, There's the answer. No, that's a carnal answer. Is education important? You bet it's important. Is that the answer? Is that how we demolish strongholds? Is by sending people to private schools and go get your college degree and then go get a master's and doctorate? Is that going to eliminate the strongholds of this world? No. It's not economics. It's not education. Uh, It's not even um, uh, charitable societies. It's using the weapons that are divinely powerful that God has given us. And so then he says in verse 5, We demolish arguments and every, some of your Bibles say pretension or speculation, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That was Paul's mission. That we tear down speculations in every lofty thing Every idea that raises itself against the knowledge of God. You know why that is? Because Paul knows that if you don't have the worldview that God has established as the creator of this world, if you abide by any other worldview, it will not lead to peace, and it will not give one ultimate hope, and it will not satisfy. That we, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, are called to tear down these speculations. Anybody that thinks that, man, when I graduate from college, if I can just get that six-figure job, man, life will be good. Want to bet? Some of you sitting here know that personally. You hit the six-figure income, and life is just as hard, if not harder, in some ways, after the fact. If I could just marry so-and-so, man, that would be it. Well, you did, and it didn't. Amen? If I could just whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it is materially or carnally, it doesn't matter. If you say, if I, then this. You're wrong. And Paul says, as Christians, we are called to tear down these speculations. Anything that raises up against the very knowledge of God and what it is that God has revealed to us on how to live life, we've got to tear those things down. And that was serious business for Paul. I mean, when Paul heard somebody go wrong, Paul was in their face because it was an affront to the very glory of God. And we know this experientially, do we not? I mean, how many of us, I'm guilty, all of us in this room are guilty, how many of us have gone down that road thinking that there is life to be found down that road, only to find death down that road, only to find loss and despair and hopelessness and meaninglessness and suffering and disappointment because the road that we took was the wrong road and the world is screaming, Go down that road. And in fact, they'll spend billions of dollars putting up all kinds of commercials to tell you that's the road to take. And the bottom line is they don't show you the, they don't show you the ramifications of those, world, those roads after the fact, do they? When you see those guys out in the woods hanging around a campfire and they say, it don't get any better than this. You want to bet? Eight guys around a campfire? Uh, there's a lot better than that, I will assure you. But hey, it don't get any, man, somebody actually looks at that and goes, oh, God, that looks so great. Let me call my seven buddies and let's go to Texoma. Pack up the cooler and, man, let's do it. Ah! And at the end of the weekend, you're like, that stunk. What's next? Oh, well, there's another commercial that tells you that you've never driven like this. Buy it. Man, it's the new Ultima. Man, you get in this thing, ooh, 0 to 60 in 6.2 seconds. You haven't lived till you've driven the new, the new Ultima. See, and you buy the Ultima, and a year later, you're like, this stinks. God, that's what I bought? And you see your neighbor who just bought 4,000 square feet, and you're still in your, you know, 1,450 square feet. And you go, man, if I only would have that. I talked to a friend of mine last week. Uh, she got her, her dream house. Her, her husband, and I'm, hey, listen, I'm not opposed to big homes, but this is kind of a humorous story. It was 4,200 square feet, her, her husband, and their one child. Great piece of land, acre in the back. And uh, I asked them, hey, how's it, how's it going out there? They hate it. Because they can't afford to pay anybody to mow the yard for one. He's got to mow that thing. Grass is this high all the time, he said. He hates it. 
she realizes like 18 more rooms, she's got a dust. She hates dust, she said. She knows she ought to just shut the doors and leave those rooms alone, but she can't. And she goes, all I do is dust. I dust and I dust and I dust. I said, how many square feet do you think you actually live in? She said, gosh, probably 2,500. I said, you ever thought about getting a 2,500 square foot home and just dusting that? She goes, I know we hate it. But, man, they were tickled pink when they finally closed on that baby. Man, I got the house of my dreams. Got the little pond in the backyard. Got all that grass and all that. Jeez, my little baby's going to love it. And they hate it. Because for them, you know, that's what that road said. Buy me, and this is your dream. Your dream home. <laughs> it's in the text. So, Paul says, no, listen. You want to have that, that's fine. We live in the world. You want to get that, that's okay. You want to get the ultimate, hey, you want to get a Lexus, get a Lexus. Hey, they go a long time. They go 355,000 miles at least. I know that. That's, how, that's where mine is. You want to get that, that's fine. But don't buy the lie, right? Because we've got to tear down these speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. So, the Christian worldview it stands for something completely different than what the world offers. Why do I believe in this? Well, last week we shared a little bit about A. I'm not going to walk through A a whole lot. I gave you five things here that I, would, that I personally, if I sat down with somebody, I would say, listen, number one, I believe in the Christian worldview because of the rational validity of Christianity. I think God makes best sense of the origin of space, matter, time, the entire cosmos. Uh, as one philosopher once said, why is there something rather than nothing? You ever wondered that? You ever just had a boring night laying in bed and you just start pondering? Man, wait a minute. Why is there, why does anything exist at all? I mean, if at one time, if you can even use that word, there literally was absolutely nothing in existence, which is where contemporary science takes us to today. If there was a time when there was absolutely nothing, why is there anything at all? It's a great question. Well, you can say, as Dawkins last week, remember in the book, he posited the fact that there's multiple universes, maybe an infinite number of universes that all kind of exist, and that out of one of them, life happened to exist in one universe. Well, you could believe that, except for the fact that you don't have any access to any of those other universes. It's just kind of a convenient way to say, I don't need God, so let me come up with a, an infinite number of other universes. Or you could say that the universe just popped into existence just out of no source and no power of anything. It just literally popped into existence. Well, I don't mind something popping into existence as long as there's a popper behind the popping, you see. I don't mind creation out of nothing as long as the creation out of nothing has a source called something, you see. God makes the best sense of the origin of the universe to me. That's what I would tell somebody. You tell me, where did the universe come from? I don't have any idea. I do. I think God is the source of the universe. You come up with something better than that that makes sense, that's observable and testable, and I'll listen to you. Until then, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God makes the best sense of the fine-tuning of the universe. Way too many narrow parameters in this world to, to, uh, to think that it just happened randomly. Listen, if, we, if Neil Armstrong 
would have stepped off his little lunar lander, stepped on the moon, and would have seen a little moon dust castle built on the moon, I promise you he would have said, Houston, someone has been here before. Would he not? Do you think Houston would say, uh, negative, Neil? Moon dust can randomly assimilate and accumulate in the form of a moon castle. He'd go, you're nuts! This is a moon castle! It has design to it! You see? You would know immediately that when I see complex figures uh, in some sort of designed form, that intelligence explains complexity and information. You see? Unless you're Richard Dawkins last week, who says that the amazing thing about nature and creation is that it has the appearance of design. See, imagine that. It has the appearance of design. But what we need to know is that nature over time did it all by itself. Well, I don't think that that has much validity to it at all. I think God makes the best sense of the fact that my brain is more complex than anything in the entire universe. My single cell, one cell in my body, is more complex than the most sophisticated computer man has come up with in the 21st century. That, to me, blows me away. See? I've got no problem that God created male and female. He created them both in the image of God. He created them. Amen? Makes best sense to me. God makes best sense, number four, of aesthetic observations. Why is it that when mankind looks at the sunset, looks at the sunrise, you are kind of in, 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 a, in a bit of wonder. Wow. Or when you see the moon, when the earth is real close to the moon, and it looks ginormous, to use Elf's word. It's ginormous, and it's round, and it's beautiful, and it looks like you can almost touch it. And you go, that's, a, that's beautiful. Why is it that we have this longing for aesthetic wonder? Why is it when I look at a second grader's artwork and I look at Monet or Picasso or Rembrandt, I'm in awe of Rembrandt. And I'm like, good job, Johnny. That stinks. Why do I recognize a huge value judgment between the two? It's because I recognize there's something intrinsically beautiful about the art, the skill, and the talent of a Rembrandt versus a stick figure that I do. Radically different. If somebody wanted to come to me and actually tell me that they found greater aesthetic beauty in my art than in the art of one of the greats, I would say you are your faculties are, are distorted. You are naive, you are clueless as to the aesthetic element that is embedded within man. We long for beauty, and we recognize it universally. We did the moral validity last week. God makes best sense of our moral longings. Why is it that we long for peace? The whole world wants peace. They really do. Even Islamic terrorists want peace. They don't wake up wanting war. They just believe that war is the means to get to peace, you see. But everybody longs for peace. God makes the best sense of moral outrage. We want justice, do we not? 
When we see an evil or an atrocity in the world, mankind unanimously screams outrage. And God makes the best sense of moral justice. Do we really believe that Stalin, after murdering 30 million people, actually died in his own bed, in his own chambers, and got away with it? Is that the worldview that I'm going to be willing to accept? That Stalin, having murdered all of those people, living a life of complete abuse and oppression, got away with it. And he's now in the same place as Mother Teresa, who gives up her life and utter self-abandonment in Calcutta, India, to help children in orphanages and give her life to that. Am I going to really equate Stalin and Hitler and Mother Teresa's, uh, the end of their life, as being the same? No, there's something inside of us that demands some sort of justice. You've got what I call anthropological validity, meaning God makes best, best sense of the greatness of man. I mean, why is it that the smartest animal that we know in the world today can barely construct anything architecturally? It can, you can get a beaver that makes a dam. You can get an ant that can build little tunnels and kind of, you know, create their little, their little patterns that they have. You've got the queen ant. You've got all these army ants working together. But when you look at it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple complex that they have, the whole way that ants work. But you go to man, and we go to the moon. Uh, we create a microscope that can peer into the smallest particles of our body, and we can deconstruct the entire genome of the human body. We can look and we can map the entire gene sequence of the entire body. We can take a telescope and we can and call it the Kobe satellite. We can send the satellite into space and we can take snapshots of the very end of the universe. Isn't that awesome? That's man. We can build cathedrals. We can build buildings, architecture, bridges. Utterly incredible what the greatness of man can do. And yet, God makes best sense of the depravity of man. We're great because we're in his image. We're not just a product of biological, naturalistic evolution that happened to create man, that is quantum leaps and bounds beyond a dolphin or an orangutan. There's a reason that man is such a quantum leap ahead of every other aspect of creation because we're in the image of God and man is great. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Psalm 8. See? But there's also a depravity of man. Why is it that same man who can go to the moon and build the cathedrals and do all that we do is the same man that in the 21st century can wage genocide to this day and will have no problem Wiping out women and children and the cripple and the lame and the sick. And we have no problems wiping these people out all around the world. Why is it that in the 21st century in America, we have no problem getting into road rage and pull a gun and actually shoot somebody because they cut us off on the highway? Yeah, it's stress. Yeah, it's pressure. But it's so much more intrinsic than that. It is a depravity that exists deep within man. See? God makes sense of that to me. Nothing else makes sense to me. I see the greatness of man. I see the depravity of man. 
And God also makes best sense of redeemed man. Do you guys know anybody that you are literally stunned and shocked that they know God now? And their life has been completely changed out of the blue? That to me is one of the most remarkable things whenever I witness that. Is the changed life that somebody has because of redemption. I gotta confess, when I was in high school, I was, I was kind of a metal rocker. Heavy metal rocker. Just terrible. I know, hard to believe. Sweet little Walter was into Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and all of that stuff. But one of the guys, the man I loved was a guy named Alice Cooper. You guys remember Alice Cooper? He was kind of the first Marilyn Manson. He was kind of the shock jock rocker. He'd get up there with electric chairs and boa constrictors and have beheadings and guillotines and all this stuff. I mean, he was just one sorry individual. And uh, several years ago, I remember I was listening after I became a Christian. I was in seminary, and I remember hearing on the radio on KLTY, they actually stopped, interrupted uh, uh, their, their, their music song list. And that was one of those, beep, 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 beep. He goes, uh, brothers and sisters, you're not going to believe this, but I just uh, we just got word that Alice Cooper has just become a Christian. I couldn't believe it. R.C. Sproul and Glenn Campbell apparently led Alice Cooper to Christ on the golf course. And I got to watch Alice Cooper give an interview on TV and talked about his faith, and I was stunned. Well, one of my best friends, he decides to go to an Alice Cooper rock concert the next year in Dallas just to see how legitimate it was. And Alice Cooper, if you ever know anything about his concerts, he always dressed in all black leather, would carry a lot of times a bow constrictor around his neck, come out with a, you know, uh, and just, just black and dark, black makeup. And he comes out at like 11 o'clock at night, and the spotlight hits the side of the stage, and out comes Alice Cooper dressed in an all-white tuxedo, a white top, top hat, and a white cane. And from under the ground... All of a sudden, rises this pulpit, comes rising from out of the ground. And he didn't cuss once, and you could just see Cooper is different. Stunning. Or when I heard of uh, whatever you think about her, whatever you think about where she is today theologically, I just read a a good chunk of her uh, biography, Uh, Jane Fonda's conversion, her utter hatred for Christians and Christianity, and now you see her sympathies. For Christ and the church. And you see the change. Like, these acts of redemption are utterly remarkable. Not only that. Almost done here. I'd also say listen. I believe in the historical validity of Christianity. God makes best sense of the life and teachings of Jesus. Here's a guy who preached for maybe three years. Between two and three years. Never wrote a thing. We have no idea if he was formally educated anywhere, and yet the life and teachings of Jesus exist to this day and have literally transformed the fabric of the entire Western world. How is that? He left nothing behind that he wrote himself. And yet this life has changed the world. Who else can you say that about? I don't, I don't know. To this day, the works and the, and, and the deeds of Jesus are still promoted as being the greatest and the highest ideals that mankind has ever known. I think God makes best sense of the life of Jesus. 
makes the best sense of the impact of Jesus on the world. Paul Johnson, the great historian, has said that anywhere Christianity has gone, genuine Christianity, not political Christianity, anywhere genuine Christianity has has gone, you have seen eventually, you have seen the abolition of slavery, the liberation of women, the liberation of children, the establishment of orphanages, the establishment of educational institutions, hospitals, everywhere you go, you see St. Paul's Hospital, St. Jude's Hospital. You don't have a hospital, as one guy says, with a big amoeba at the top of the hospital. The first hospital of naturalistic evolution. It's St. Jude's. It's St. Paul's, you see. Those are the institutions that have been affected by the very life and teachings of Jesus. It has changed the world. Infanticide was reduced drastically all throughout the Eastern world as a direct result of the influence of Christianity in the lives of of kings and emperors. The gladiatorial games were ended because Theodosius II, the, the, the Roman emperor, became a Christian and believed in the dignity of man and the dignity of life and ended the hundreds of thousands of people who were killed in the gladiatorial games. See? It's just, we could go on and on. We want a great book on that. Alvin Schmidt uh, wrote a wonderful book um, on the impact that Christianity has had um, in, in the entire Western world. Alvin Schmidt. God also makes the best sense of the claims of Jesus' resurrection. We'll go into that a little bit next time. But Jesus claimed to be divine. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. The Father and I are one. Tear down this body, and in three days, I will raise it again. They're going to take me, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. Jesus made those claims multiple times. The body is gone. Where did it go? What theory are you going to come up with to best account for all of the historical facts of the resurrection, of the changed lives of the early followers of Jesus, of the conversion of Paul, of the conversion of the, of the brother of Jesus, James? How are you going to make sense of those things? I think God makes best sense of those things. And finally, I, I, I wrote the word teleological validity. All that means is teleology is simply the study of purpose or ends. That there is purpose in this life. And God makes best sense of ultimate purpose. Everybody is in the pursuit of ultimate purpose. And if there is no God, then there is no ultimate purpose. And now purpose becomes self-referential. Right? Now it becomes defined by the way that I choose to define it in order to give my life some sort of finite temporal meaning so that I can make it through this life. One of the reasons I enjoyed the writings of the nihilistic existentialists, these atheistic existentialists, guys like um, uh, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, it's because these guys said, life has no meaning and that matters. They said it matters that life has no meaning. Camus said the ultimate question, the last question everybody has to answer is, when should I commit suicide? That's it. At what point in my life is my life irredeemable to have any more positive effects in it? So his question was, everybody, ultimately, that is the last question you have to contemplate. Not if, 
when do I finally end it? See? I love at least the honesty of that because he recognizes what a life without ultimate meaning ought to look like. It's despair. It's nihilism. And God makes best sense of man's insatiable search for purpose. Every person is searching for purpose. Even those people who give up, allegedly, still find purpose and meaning in the giving up of the pursuit. Every person, it's insatiable. You know, you guys, I teach tennis at the country club down in Dallas. Very wealthy country club. Man, let me tell you, man is an insatiable creature after stuff and after things and after people and after feelings and after emotions. And it is insatiable. It never ends. And it's like St. Augustine once said, that we remain restless until we rest in Thee. Amen? You have created us for Thee, and our hearts remain restless until they rest in Thee. And that's why. If somebody said, Walter, why are you a Christian? I'd say because man, purpose-wise, meaning-wise, I find rest in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a work that has been done for me. It is secure. I am at peace with God. I am at peace with myself. I am at peace with man. That God makes best sense of the world, the order in it, the design of it. God makes best sense of history. He makes best sense of Christ. That's why I'm convinced of the Christian worldview. So, I hope this is a little bit helpful for you guys. If somebody ever asks you to make sense of why you're a Christian, these would be some good reasons to help kind of let you thinking, get you thinking there a little bit. And if you're talking to somebody, these are great questions to ask them to make sense. How do you make sense of the world, of the cosmos, of meaning, of history, of the life of Jesus, of purpose? Great questions to ask as we begin trying to get people to engage Christ.